Danielle Mayfield. And I'm Crispin Mayfield. And this is the Prophetic Imagination Station Podcast. Where we discuss evangelical media from the 80s and 90s to understand how it impacted us and our generation. This season, we're talking about DC Talk's album, Jesus Free. today with Jesse McLaughlin and very excited to be talking about the first track of Jesus Freak. Um, we first got connected with Jesse through Twitter. My um, favorite and, social media. Uh-huh. Oh, RIP. I left Twitter. I can't believe it, but it, I had to do it. It, it finally happened. So yeah, I get it. You know, but that's that's how I met really cool people, yeah. including mm-hmm. Jesse. Mm-hmm. And we are we are fans of Good Mythical Morning, which is, you know, a YouTube show that your husband's involved with. And they've kind of been in the news for some deconstruction stuff in the past. And then, you know, your your social media is obviously beautiful art and furniture and aesthetics, but a a bit of uh the deconstruction stuff as well. And you're like really into therapy which really caught my eye because I'm new to being in therapy and it's life-changing and my poor therapist husband has just been waiting waiting (laughs) waiting for me to join the team (laughs) the getting help team so here we are yeah um Jesse do you want to go ahead and just kind of tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and you know how you're coming into this conversation about DC Talks album Jesus Freak sure Um, Well, thank you all so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here and uh, meet you in person, well, over the screen, but face to face. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, just I do love Twitter because of the cool people that I've met. It's a unique space to do that. So I am crossing my fingers that can stay on there, but we'll see. Um, But yeah, I am... Uh, from the South, from North Carolina, originally grew up in a small town outside of Raleigh there, uh, was a Christian from the time. I mean, one of my earliest memories, I don't know exactly why it happened under the kitchen table, but I remember accepting Jesus into my heart under the kitchen table. (laughs) And that's one of my very early memories. And uh, I mean, I, one of my other early memories is being at the park on the swing set and witnessing to a little girl. I think I was six at the time. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, I was concerned that sh- this g- little six-year-old was going to burn in hell if mm-hmm. I did not tell give her the gospel. Uh, so... <laughs> That so I, relatable. Uh-huh. <laughs> spent a lot. <laughs> spent a lot of time thinking about people burning in hell at a very young age. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is something I, I think about now and, and what that, what that does to a kid to mm-hmm. not only believe that, um, lots of people, in fact, the majority of people are going to burn in hell, but you might be responsible, uh, if you had mm-hmm. the opportunity to save them and you did not. And yeah, so <laughs> we, uh, wow. went yeah. to a Christian school, um, had a very loving, wonderful family, uh, and the school that they sent me to because it was, you know, one of the options and was actually probably one of looking back, one of the lesser evils than it could have been in terms of private Christian schools in the South. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And I think a huge amount of my trauma came from being in that school. Uh, It was a conservative, you know, non-denominational, but probably closest to Southern Baptist Christian school. A lot of the teachers had uh, gone to Bob Jones University. Um, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, you know, my family was actually pretty chill. Like, that was not – we knew there were a lot of things that we would say that's crazy. Like, the fact that, you know, women – at Bob Jones have to wear skirts and hose. And I mean, we were a very, I, I don't want to say worldly family because we definitely weren't worldly, but we were in the world. Maybe that's the way to say it. We were definitely in the world. Um, you know, we loved cute clothes. My mom was a designer. So I saw a lot of that from an early age. Um, we watched TV. Of course, there were some shows that, uh, were debatable. Um, (laughs) although, you know, my, my parents, my mom is my, my mom and dad never took a really hard line on those kind of tertiary issues. That wasn't, their thing, which I'm so grateful for. But, uh, because of who I was, um, I really latched on to anything that felt like a rule that I needed to follow. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, I think, uh, when I was just kind of giving you guys a brief rundown of, of my spiritual history, um, I realized looking back, I realized by third grade, I had full blown OCD, I did not know that that's what it was, did not have the information that we have now. So, you know, I was erasing homework um, again and again, erasing a hole in the paper. Um, I was confessing to my wonderful, thank God, I had an incredible third grade teacher. And at recess, I would sit on the bench beside her and confess to her that I had thought a curse word. Uh, you know, and I'll never forget her saying, she tried to say, you know, Jesse, if you're driving a car and maybe you run a red light, you don't need to find the nearest police officer and and let them know that you (laughs) ran a red light. Um, so there were adults in my life who were saying those kinds of things, but at the same time I was getting these messages that, uh, as we talk about in the song, you know, I'm evil to the core. I'm totally depraved. I didn't have those words, but that came 
later on as I, in my Bible classes, um, that got more and more advanced Bible theology classes, um, because it was that, I guess it's kind of that John Piper Baptist with that little reformed twist, that thing. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. wow. That is the most toxic combo. Oh, Let, yes. me right. Let me just right. tell you. Let me just tell you right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, like, just, just thinking about your childhood, like, I think that's such a good picture of what so many of us went through, where it's like, we didn't have those, like those outward sort of cult sort of like you have to dress in a certain way or you have like from the outside, it looks pretty chill. Mm -hmm. And then on the inside, it is, does not feel chill. Well, and Mm -hmm. certain people, and I think Jesse, you've already brought this up. You're like, I just happened to be the kind of person that took it seriously and took it literally. And what does that do when you're six, seven, eight, um, I, I'm just sort of like in awe of how you're able to even look back at yourself and, and see that. Um, and it's really sad. I just have to say, like listening to you talk, it's like, um, it's really sad that maybe, I mean, I guess my whole life I grew up being like, why isn't everybody taking this as seriously as I am? Because, you know, it kind of makes me want to die when I think about the pressure inherent in, um, evangelicalism. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to say, wow, um, that's just a lot. And also, I'm glad you were able to say how your OCD showed up because I only this year have realized that I also have OCD. But because I was in white evangelicalism, I was just a really spiritual person who was obsessed with being an ethical person. That's actually called moral scrupulosity, people. <laughs> just in case anybody listening has that too, you can yeah. get help for it. You, it's you amazing. There's therapy, there's medication. It changed my life. And it helped me realize that everything is not that serious. It's not all that serious. <laughs> but mm-hmm. we were the perfect people for fundamentalism is what is so fascinating about it. And they don't care about how it impacts us negatively because outwardly we do everything they tell us to do without hesitation. Oh, I mean, I was a valedictorian. I was the, you know, I did, I followed the rules. I never made a B. I never, not that that means shit. It doesn't mean, I don't know. Can I curse on this podcast? I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) Like, it it meant nothing, but I was caught in a performance trap. And, you know, I, I also, my parents, how were they supposed to know? I would confess these things to my mom. Like I maybe thought something or I, whatever the recent I had in school, there was a lot of, I think I've cheated on tests. That was part of my, you know, I would see the kids in between classes would say, you know, kids tell each other, that's a thing that happens. That's a normal thing that normal people who are not morally depraved do is they go out and they tell other kids what was on the test. And that was like, my worst nightmare. I feared walking mm. through the halls and hearing, oh. you know, so I, I was care- constantly carrying this burt, this heavy burden. And, you know, I would confess things to my mom and, and she did the best, a great job, uh, without being, you know, a therapist of trying to help me. Uh, but she didn't know what she was dealing with. Uh, and so, and, and thinking about which something I haven't gotten into yet, 
uh, as deeply as I would like to. We've started, uh, I think, grazing the surface of attachment styles. And mine was definitely, you know, I am anxious for sure. Like I was extremely needy um, and ended up using my mom for reassurance. So she became the person that I, you know, I confessed to. She was like my priest, (laughs) even though she did not Mm -hmm. set herself up that way. That was, I saw her as the moral authority. And so Mm -hmm. in my mind, you know, and sometimes it would be a teacher. Sometimes it, it was whoever was in authority that I had to clear my conscience with, which I thought was the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, and, and I would let, and so in my family, while they weren't the rules that seemed ridiculous to them, they could easily say, this is a ridiculous rule. I could not. I mean, I remember being at at the wilds, which was a camp put on by Bob Jones for, um, (laughs) private Christian schools. And yeah, I remember just bawling and just, such deep regret over having worn a bikini, um, just crying and begging God to forgive me. And I think I wore a bikini again after that. So apparently it was, in that moment it was really, but you know, and I would have these, these bizarre, which now again, I look back, I'm like, oh, that's OCD. Um, these bizarre connections that it was like, if I do this thing, God is going to punish me. God is going to punish the people I love, even though I knew. And some people will say, oh, well, you don't, you never understood the gospel. And that is bullshit. I knew the gospel uh-huh. backwards yeah. and forwards. I knew oh, yeah. scripture. Yeah. I had fucking OCD. I'm, you think I'm not reading the Bible? <laughs> like, yeah. oh, I yeah. read the Bible every, I'm on my knees mm-hmm. praying for an hour and a half before I go to middle school. You know, like this is not normal if I, and, and one thing that people love to say, you know, as well, I said it, I would say it about people who left the faith. Um, you know, they, they were never really a Christian to begin with. And what I want to say is if I wasn't a Christian, if my husband wasn't a Christian, Christian's got a big ass problem <laughs> because you, how, Yes, like maybe God had not really touched our heart and we were pretending. But if the, the if that is the kind of God, if the kind of God would let us believe and give our lives in the way that we did, like you said, I took it seriously. We took it seriously. Yeah, uh I don't I don't yeah, maybe I don't understand Christianity. And I'm at the point where I'm like, you know what? If that's really what you think about me, like if you really believe that, maybe that's okay. Like I'm starting to be able to be okay mm. with people mm. thinking I was never a Christian. Does it hurt? It, mm. I, I can't explain how much it hurts. But yeah. I'm learning that what you think about me is not my problem or my business. Mm. But... It's taken a lot of therapy (laughs) and it's still, and I, every day fall back into those old patterns, but I feel more myself than I've ever felt before. And I feel freer and Mm -hmm. we know where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And (laughs) 
I got freedom. So I'm choosing to believe I have the spirit of the Lord, whatever that means. And I don't have to know anymore. But if this is what it feels like to be free, to be yourself, to be slowly unfolding into the person that it feels more authentic than you ever felt before. I mean, to me, that's where God is. I can't imagine Mm -hmm. that God's desire for me was the, uh, the tortured person that I was before. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm just like crying over here because I don't even know what I believe anymore because I've been tortured for so long and the church was like, yeah, please keep torturing yourself. Um, uh, and, and me getting free is seen as, uh, you know, destroying them, destroying God. Cause just, I'm just like, what is happening? And I really agree with you. Like, I don't know what's going on, but I feel free. Um, and I also relate to growing up extreme. I call it hyper-religious now. I was a hyper-religious person. Yeah. And some of what you've said sounds like you were as well. And we take it seriously. We go all in. And the negative impacts are mostly internal, especially if you're a woman or socialized as female. We internalize the anxiety. Nobody knows our suicidal ideation. Nobody knows our intrusive thoughts. We keep it inside, right? And the pain is unbearable. And I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy and sometimes and you're a mom too like I look at my kids and they're 12 and 7 and they're obsessed with anime and I'm just like what would it have been like to grow up where I thought about anime all the time and not about people burning in hell because that's also what I thought about um and it's just fascinating to be like we can see some of that in our kids and then also wish you know we had the same given to us but that fundamentalist urge right I grew up in that world it's like now I have to try and convince everybody to stop being a fundamentalist Christian I'm like Danielle just slow your roll just slow your roll because that's kind of where I am right now I'm going to jump in. You're not going to get an Mormon edgewise, are you? I know, poor Christmas. I, I knew this is the way it would go anyway. But I do want to say that this, like, you've already talked a bit about, like, when I listened to this song by DC Talk, So Help Me God. Oh, are we going to yeah, talk about DC Talk today? Like, I just need Jesse to keep preaching, I'm you like, know? Somebody's got to bring DC Talk into this conversation. But it's, it is like, it's a, it, you know, I, I was looking at the lyrics and I was, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to talk to Jesse about this because it's just this mis- mishmash of like all the evangelical things of like, you're at war with the world, you're at war with oh. yourself, you're addicted to oh. God, but like you don't love God enough, mm. uh, you're totally broken mm. and like you have to pick up your daily cross, like I think about that as someone who's hyper-religious, takes it really seriously, has OCD or has those OCD tendencies. Like, this is, like, exactly where you live. And, like, this song by DC Talk is just like, yes, this is where you're supposed to live. This is what it's supposed to be like all the time. Is like, it is so serious. And I, I think, like, some of it is, like, it's almost like sometimes people will tell us to, like, watch a movie that is, like, like everything... Uh, everywhere all at uh, once that's like very significant oh, like existential wise so good and Danielle's like 
I don't need to watch it. Like that is like <laughs> how I live my life. I, that's at how all I times. live my life. And I think it's the same thing with this Christian music. Like the people, like I think they were trying to do something where they're trying to like get the mediocre like teenagers to like really commit their life to God. But really, what ended up happening is like the people that were already really serious about it are like, this is our anthem. Like <laughs> this is like we're just gonna take this on. Well, yeah. When you asked, you said you. I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but how does this remind you of, you know, your Christian uh, worldview? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, the first thing is the really bad lyricism, like the horrible, (laughs) horrible, (laughs) cringy lyrics. I mean, I have Uh so many good stories, y'all. I was in a Christian, a church band, and we covered secular songs, but we changed the words. So we had, we changed the words to the wall. Um, we don't need no psychic hotline. We don't need no crystal balls. We've, we've got oh Jesus God. in our hearts now. Satan leaves those kids alone. <laughs> hey, Satan, leave those kids alone. So, yeah, wow. like oh there was so much. I just, you know, when you look at a lot of Christian art and it's so bad and, and, and not to make a sweeping generalization, but I'm going to make a sweeping generalization. Do it. Do it. And I've, I've, I don't know who I heard talking about this, but. You know, when you make art that has such an agenda that is so agenda driven, it's typically not good art because it comes from this mm-hmm. place of uh, of an agenda. And I see that. I mean, I so relate to what you're saying, Danielle, because I have and something my therapist has been working with me a lot on is that I was born in the fires of evangelicalism and I'm an evangelist and I'm going to be an evangelist for whatever thing I think is the cure for everybody else. (laughs) And I actually don't know what's best for everybody. (laughs) Ah, What? Shocking. I know. I know. (laughs) Right. And I, I, I don't even know what's best for myself. I'm learning mm. to listen to myself. I'm learning to mm. listen to those, my, to my body, to my gut. I didn't even know I had a gut and that that was a thing I could listen to. <laughs> so that as I, I, and I think a big part of that is learning to take the pressure off of myself that I have to save everybody, whatever that means, and that I have to fight the good fight, and that I might not know what the good fight is. I can do the best I can. It's not going to be perfect. I'm not going to be pure. I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little bit fucked up. (laughs) And, you know, a little wabi-sabi, I took a pottery class for the first time. I've been dreaming of taking a pottery class and finally had a personal retreat and took one. And uh, it was such a beautiful metaphor for um, my life, (laughs) 
for this idea that I learned so much. First of all, pottery is so much harder than I realized. Pottery is tough. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm creative. I can just go in here and whip up some beautiful vase that I'll bring home and show off and say, oh, you guys, I made, I ended up with the trinket dish about an inch big <laughs> because we had to keep losing clay because I kept messing up and couldn't get it centered. And it's like these so much patience and these tiny little movements that seem almost imperceptible that end up making this huge difference in your piece of pottery. Uh, and, and one of the words that, the which I'm sure this has been discussed a ton, but it was new, it was new and big for me. Um, the pottery teacher talked about wabi-sabi pottery and, you know, it's that Japanese uh, idea, um, aesthetic that, and, and of course I should have already known about this with design, but it embraces imperfections. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was so big for me as I thought about that performance I hear some things in your story and even going into this song, which is called So Help Me God is the first song on the album Jesus Freak. And you're talking about perfectionism. And um, something I don't think we talk about enough is how that is baked into fundamentalism. And they do want people. And again, I'm going to say they especially want women to... be all in on perfectionism, yep. but the the flip side of perfectionism is actually self hatred, yes. right? And this Ooh. knowledge, I can never, ever, ever, ever measure up, but I'm going to try really hard. And just thinking about how fundamentalism loves that, especially if it's in service to their institution or their cause, um, they really want people to hate themselves. And I think this song really shows us that, right? But we, it's so over-spiritualized. Like you can sing this song and all that. And a lot of people, not a lot, I would say some people don't internalize all that shit. But again, some of us do, right? And if it happens to some of us, it's bad for all of us. That's just what I'm going to say right there. And so I just kind of wondered, did you listen to DC Talk growing up? Like, was this on your radar or was that not really happening for you? I listened to DC Talk. They were not one of my faves. I should have looked up who all my, I had, I listened to some DC Talk, of course. You couldn't be a Christian in the 90s. And I mean, you were not a Christian if you didn't have some connection to DC Talk. In fact, I was talking to my husband about this and, and we listened to part of the song together in the car. And then he played for the, for our kids. Uh, one of the other DC talk songs that he said he was embarrassed. He loved, but Jesus freak, he was embarrassed <laughs> out because of how much at the time, even because of how much it sounded like smells like teen spirit. And I did not realize <laughs> I had never made that connection. And when he played it for me, I was like, and I could not <laughs> believe, uh, but yeah, so I was DC talk light um, I liked mm-hmm. some others. I, there were some like, I had a very wide range of music styles that I liked uh, from Christian metal to, I, I loved Waterdeep. I loved, oh, uh, wow. they, they seemed, you know, even in the early aughts, Sarah Groves, um, Nicole Nordman, mm-hmm. of course, Cayman's Call. 
um, they were, you know. Oh my gosh, you were giving me such flashbacks to like uh-huh. my, I was really into playing the djembe. Remember when oh. all like the white girls oh, like yes. myself played the African drums? It's so horrifying. Yes. Yes. Think of, I was a djembe girl, man. Oh, oh wow. I played the guitar. I, I, and I used and wrote. I wrote some of my own Christian music, which, you know, I can say nothing about these DC talks, talk lyrics because of (laughs) how horrendous my lyrics were. Uh, But I used the term play lightly. Like I knew like four chords, which was enough. That's That's all all you need. need. That's all you need. And I led worship. I said, I was telling Rhett recently, I was like, I cannot believe I had the guts I'm freaking out about this performance and I'm not even playing the guitar. I had the guts. I would go lead worship at church on retreats with my four chords. I did that and I'm, I'm scared to go sing this song with you. Um, but yeah, I, I feel you on that. This perfectionism thing, this song is like such a good example of like, I'm the chief of sinners, like I'm so broken, I need you to make me whole. There's this like acknowledgement of like, I'm broken, but there's still this perfectionistic standard. I think what you're like, what you're getting at is like, you you do have to accept that you're sin and then hate yourself for it, right? Like that's the way to deal with it. And I think that can be so confusing because even in like progressive quote unquote mm-hmm. churches, right? Like they're like, yeah, you're welcome as you are. Like, you know, we want to see your messiness, et cetera. But it's like you have to hate the messiness, which is so different than what you're talking about with the pottery of like embracing mm-hmm. the imperfection. Right. There are so many mixed messages that are sent to people. And I think especially the level of cognitive dissonance that you have to have, you know, like I will talk about hating ourselves and somebody who is still in that world or still believes those things will say, well, you didn't understand grace. And it's like, Oh, I understood grace. I mean, I got to call bullshit. I can lead you down the Romans road. I understand that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of our own. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. I mean, I, you know, I get it. And we're the chief of sinners. There is none good. No, not one. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And part of this comes from, you know, as I learn more about the Bible and looking at the Bible in a different way than I did, you know, theology tries to squish it all together and make it all make sense so that we can have this neat, clean set of rules that we can give people. And that's not, that's not how it was written. A bunch of these guys didn't even know each other and they were just trying to figure (laughs) out God, (laughs) you know? And and so when you say you're the chief of sinners, you're totally depraved. You it's, it's all undeserved grace. It's all whatever. And then, and, and then you get this opposite thing. You're made in God's image. You were chosen. You were, it's there. It's, I mean, I'm it's not like an abusive relationship. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting because my oldest kid started questioning when he was about seven without really knowing that we were questioning, which was so much fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I and we had just moved, you know, we had moved across the country, um, and we were still going. Found a church right away, started going. We're doing everything we could to hold on. My husband was further down that path than I was, 
at that point. But I had always had these questions. Always. You know, when we first got married, he and I would walk around. I was still in college because if we wanted to have sex, we had to get married and we wanted to have sex. And so (laughs) we were both virgins because we were going to do it the right way. So that means you get married at 20 and 23. Uh, mm-hmm. So we did. 21 and 23. Okay. Right okay. Okay. <laughs> um, and we would walk around my little chapel. I went to UNC, we'd walk around Chapel Hill. And depending on who was doubting or struggling, we would have these proofs that we came up with for the other person. So. Mm-hmm. If if I was the one that day, really, and hell tended to be my thing a lot. Like I would kind of fixate mm-hmm. on hell for some mm-hmm. reason. He, while he was incredibly uncomfortable with it and didn't really want you know to believe it, it was for some reason. You know, I tend to be the more empathetic one, honestly. <laughs> so, I'm not saying he was for hell, but we he had less issues <laughs> believing it. I, it would keep me up at night. And yeah. for him, it might be these these facts, the geology. You know, I'm looking at these, uh, I'm reading this book, and it doesn't, I'm reading this book from Institute of Creation Research from or from Ken Ham, and then I'm reading this college-level geology book, and, like, one of them seems to not be telling the whole story, and mm-hmm. it's not the textbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'd always had, we had had doubts in different ways, struggles in different ways. But one of the questions to bring it back to the song you asked me was the difference. If I've, I've, I think the difference in losing your faith or your faith being taken from you, can you explain that question a little bit more? Cause I think this relates yeah. to it. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Cause the, the song talks about like, help me God to put my faith in you. Right. right. So that I can like hold on to this faith. And so I wonder for you, did it feel like I'm losing my faith and trying to hold on to it? Or is it like, I'm trying to get out of here and mm-hmm. I can't like escape. I think it definitely felt like I was losing it and trying to hold on to it. Once we yeah. started the process yeah. in earnest of actually yeah. allowing ourselves to look at, to, to ask the questions and really ask the questions, to ask the questions and mm-hmm. not come to the question with an answer already formed that was, that made me comfortable because there was no easy, that, that's a, a thing that people, you know, with deconstruction that, uh, People have said, people have lobbed at us. Oh, you did this because it was cool. You did it because it was, you know, you moved to LA and it was easy and uh, it was what everybody around you was doing. And this is, it is the most harrowing, uh, soul <laughs> ripping process. You know, I would lay in bed and just cry and beg God, like, where are you? Where are you, yeah. God? just feeling like I had been completely abandoned by God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but the, uh, an interesting thing is that I never before Rhett really started questioning in earnest and allowing himself to, to let the questions answer themselves to unfold, to seek the real answers instead of the answers that could allow us to stay 
in the mm-hmm. place that we were. I never saw myself as somebody who would walk away. You know, they would say we would have these chapel speakers who would say one and however many is going to stay. And in 10 years, four of you will no longer, four out of five will no longer be Christians, whatever it was. I was always going to be the one that stayed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not staying was never an option. It wasn't a thought. It wasn't a, you know, this was not something I'd been planning. <laughs> uh, and so looking back now, I just think about how courageous my husband was. Um, and I feel so grateful because uh, sometimes we'll just look at each other and say, we got out. Because it feels like we came out of, in some ways, a cult. Yeah. No, Mm -hmm. you should say that. I think we should be saying that louder, you know? And it's hard to say because I, that's so hurtful to so many people that I love. I know. know. And I don't want to hurt the people that I love. And I also know everybody's process is different. My process was different from my husband's. I'm sure while there's similarities you know, my process is different it, and from what y'all have experienced and people end up in different places and mm-hmm. you may end up in a similar place just with slightly different views on things. But it is this idea that we could actually choose for ourselves. And I think I there was this myth that I had chosen Jesus, but telling a kid that you believe this or you burn in hell is not choosing. Oh my God. It's not mm-hmm. choosing Jesse. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, but it took me until it took me until I was an adult and could step back and, and ask these really ask these questions that I could choose. Mm-hmm. And so I am just sometimes in awe of his ability to make, to, to, he cares a lot about truth and for him, and there's some truths we won't know. That's the thing that I think is so funny that like we have these such strong opinions about where you go when you die, which is something nobody can know. We actually can't know. I know. I know. <laughs> and it's 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 wild to think about how much we bought into all this. And I just I just want to say one thing really quick, which is this line that really stood out to me from the song is it says, Call it my addiction. I can't get enough of you. You know, so help me God to put my faith in you. And and I I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this like addiction piece, like why um or just the, the varying ways, like hype, being a hyper-religious person or being all in is actually like a coping mechanism and it has some similarities to addiction because that's something I was never, nobody ever told me that and, until I was in therapy, right? Which is like being hyper-religious is a trauma response. It also can be like for emotionally immature people, narcissistic people being hyper-religious can be one way, you know, they have like an approved addiction right in our society. I, I don't know if that's something you've thought about at all, but it does go to what everything you've been saying, right? I've just been researching high control religion, how it indoctrinates children, how devastating childhood fundamentalist indoctrination is. Um, 
And, you know, the reason why I think it's important we say it's at least cult-like is because that'll help more people to say, oh, actually, the impacts of this are really long-lasting and could be impacting me now. Mm -hmm. And it is the reason why we don't talk about it is because we all know people in the cult, right? So that's why evangelicalism and conservative Christianity is not considered a cult. It's just because we know too many people in it. Therefore, we can't say that out loud. But um, yeah, so I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that addiction piece Mm -hmm. or hyper-religiosity or any, uh, any of that. Well, yeah, I think, especially now looking back at the lens of my childhood and my, my personality and, you know, seeing this OCD for as OCD for what it was when at the time I, I didn't, I, it is like being in this uh, relationship with someone where it, your compulsions are encouraged. Yes. And so it would be like, oh, you have a hand washing problem. Every time you wash your hands, somebody says, good job. That's right. Do it again. Oh, they're not bleeding quite enough. They're not quite, quite. No, I think, oh, maybe there might still be some germs in between your ring finger. And, you know, that is what being a person with OCD in a religious in a fundamentalist environment is like. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is just the perfect picture. <laughs> that is like so validating, but heartbreaking yeah. mm-hmm. because I've never heard anybody describe it like that. But even thinking about this song, So Help Me God, if you're a person with religious scrupulosity or even like existential OCD or any of these things, like listening to this song, it just feeds these intrusive thoughts. And, um, Oh, that was just, that was a really powerful analogy. Cause again, I think our culture understands, oh, when you have OCD, you wash your hands a lot. And that's true. That is a true thing. But what about these internal, oh. ethical, moral, existential, religious mm-hmm. compulsions? And it's like, yeah, they're fed by fundamentalism. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear uh, therapy for you and like how that's been helpful. Oh my gosh. I am just such a therapy fan and hype girl, therapy hype girl. Uh, I started, I I had been to therapy a few times. I went, when I finally got diagnosed with OCD, it was my freshman year in college. And I, I didn't remember until recently, my mom said that I, for the first time I articulated some thoughts of wanting to die. Uh, and Mm. she said, we got to figure out whatever this is. And I'm just so such huge props to my mom for getting me to a therapist and getting me diagnosed. I was 19 and went on antidepressants. Uh, and I thought, oh, is this how normal people feel? Is this what normal people go around like feeling like this, <laughs> not mm. obsessing over every little thing. Although I still, as you know, somebody with OCD, like probably never be completely gone, but it gets lo- louder and quieter depending on where you are with it mm-hmm. and what interventions you're using. And that was my first taste of relief. Uh, but, you know, at, at that point I was still in obviously deep in evangelicalism. We hadn't even gone on staff with that Christian organization yet. Um, And so I went a few times to therapy after that, but it was not a consistent part of my life. And it wasn't until about 
six, six or seven years ago, uh, with my, my youngest, um, is a really incredible human. And I had no idea how to parent him. Uh, and I kept feeling like there were, there was something I was missing and I didn't know what it was, you you know, and things that I thought should work with him did not work with him. (laughs) And so I finally had this wonderful friend who had incredible insights into kids and had gone through things with her own kids. And she said, I have this, I I called her in desperation and she said, I have this therapist. He's great. So I called this therapist and I said, uh, hi, yes, um, I got your name and from my, my friend and I just, my kid needs therapy because <laughs> I don't know what's going on with him. <laughs> he said, okay, why don't you come in? And my kid laughs at this story, FYI. He knows that I tell this story and he thinks it's hilarious. So, uh, so he said, why don't you come in and we'll, we'll talk. You can tell me what's going on with your kid and then we'll go go from there. And I was like, okay, great. So I go in, uh, I start talking as I do. Y'all see, I don't have a problem talking (laughs) (laughs) about an hour in. He says, okay, well, I want you to come back next week. Uh, and I don't want you to bring your kid and we need to do a session and a half every week with you. <laughs> that was humbling. And I think deep down, I knew that I had a lot to work through and a lot that mm-hmm. I had been that needed to be addressed. And I went to therapy every week for about five or six years. I had a short stint where I got really mad at my therapist, which I hear happens. <laughs> So I told him I needed to take a break. (laughs) So I took a break for about three months and then of course came crawling back and, you know, I'm always like, you were right. I was mad. I couldn't (laughs) take it. I wasn't ready to hear it. Whatever. Uh, And yeah, I did not. It's so interesting how you, with therapy, you start on these, they see what you can, a good therapist. And that is the other thing. You know, I had such Mm. the gift of getting this incredible therapist my first try. And that does not happen for everybody. And so I do think it is worth it to keep trying if you don't have that therapist that is right for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Mm -hmm. finding the right therapist is such a gift and is life-changing. And I just, you know, can't, I can't say enough about what therapy has done for my marriage, for parenting, for the way I view the world, uh, and just the layers and layers and layers of spiritual trauma that we keep uncovering and keep finding. And I think mm-hmm. last year he said, Hey, Jesse, I think we can go to twice a month. And we had a moment, you know, where we both kind of got teary eyed. Uh, but it felt right. And sometimes now I'll go, I'm too busy. I may go a month or three weeks without talking to him and I've got the tools, um, in a way that I didn't before. And I think there's also that grief over all the time you spent without those tools. You know, I think the only tools I had were, um, 
very, very confusing Bible verses for a huge part mm-hmm. of my life. Mm-hmm. So having like very practical tools that change my life every day in my interactions, my, and I, and, and there is, I, I still experience grace in a way that I can't, is, is indescribable. And I, you know, I don't have to name it like I used to have to name it. Yeah. I experience like, man, the fruits of the spirit, like, or where it's at. I'm still all about the fruits of the spirit, <laughs> love, mm. joy, patience, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And when I see those things, I'm like, the, the spirit of God is here. And I, I don't even really know what that means in the way that I would have, like, if you asked me for a definition of the spirit of God, (laughs) I don't have it. I was thinking about, as you listed those things, how non-existent those are for so many of us that are in that religious system. The fruits of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's when you talk about all you had were these very confusing verses as your tools. Like I really related to that. And then part of my story is just like feeling like I was losing my mind, being surrounded by people who said they wanted to love Jesus, be a Jesus freak. And they hated Muslims. They worship police officers. They, I, I just like, I just feel like the past 10 years, I've just been completely in shock, you know, and and a part of me wishes I was a more cynical person or whatever, but I wasn't. And so I, again, I was listening to Jesus freak. I thought we were Jesus freaks, but looking at this song and all the other songs on this album, there's nothing about those fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. No, it's just this get in this abusive relationship with this religion. You must proselytize at all times to people without ever engaging with the actual ethics of Jesus or parts of scripture that, you know, relate on a more humanist level. And so uh, just the cognitive dissonance of growing up like we did is so strong. And also I want to say, I also started therapy the first time this year because of my child. (laughs) And look at me now deconverting. (laughs) <laughs> What's happening? Well, that's how they guess. That's, we they just guess. talked in our last episode about how James Dobson did not want anyone to go to therapy. Uh, yes. And he was right. Dr. Dobson was right. It's a slippery slope <laughs> when you go to a therapist. Reading <laughs> books and going to therapy, those are slippery slopes. <laughs> <laughs> Reading non Bob Jones yes. is a slippery yes, slope for sure. Right. For oh. sure. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, Jesse, I feel like we could literally talk to you forever. Mm-hmm. I just want to say, you know, from, from Jesus freak to therapy freak, um, <laughs> you know, I think that's a, I think that's a good transition, you know, to make at this point in our lives. Um, I just wanted to give you a chance if there's anything else you wanted to say, you know, about this, the sort of era of Jesus freaks and, and what it's like to be you now. Um, yeah. I just, well, thank y'all so much for having, this has been such a joy to talk. I feel like, yes, we could talk for hours. You said something and it something I've been thinking about a lot lately is 
seeing people as humans, as souls in a way that I would have said that I did before and I couldn't and I didn't. And something I'm still working on, like I am, I am like a naturally more empathetic, like generally empathetic person. And yet I know I spent so much of my life seeing people as targets or problems I needed to fix. Mm -hmm. And especially my husband and I talk a lot about polarization and I, uh, get angry because I still think, well, now I'm on the right side, just like I thought before I was on the right side. And so I'm like, well, we have polarization for a reason because we're right and they're wrong. (laughs) I mean, it's not that helpful, really. And so in general, I just, I'm really trying to figure out what is in me that wants to see people as their issues or their beliefs instead of them as a person, because I want to be seen as a person. I want to be not seen as somebody who, Oh, well, she used to be a Christian. Look at her now. She's fallen off or she's whatever. Uh, or I, I want to just, as my therapist tells me about my kids, he's like, you hold them in the light and you believe the best. And hmm. I think about that so much because that's what I want people to do for me. I want them to believe the best and to hold me in the light and to see me as a human, just like them, deserving of love and goodness. Oh, I love that so much. And I just want to put a, a quick, you know, second plug in for um, Human Overboard, mm-hmm. right? The project of James and the Shame Thank and you. you. You mm-hmm. sing on one of the songs that's so beautiful and actually just, you know, me and Chris would relate to that song so much. Yeah. Um, I, sing, I sing on two other songs on there. Oh, I do. do you, which, which ones? There's one to our kids that I sing on. Oh. And uh, I sing on, there's a song called Kill a Man that I got to do some of my opera on for fun. It's like a spaghetti <gasps> Western. It's ridiculous. And so that was fun. I feel, I feel like I just have only listened to like the singles and like yes. Give a Damn is like me to a T. Uh, so that's uh, really gets me in the feels. Uh-huh. And I will say it seems like it's just the perfect palate cleanser to Jesus Freak in a way, because I, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but it's a deeply humanist mm-hmm. album, mm-hmm. right? How do we view each other as humans? Mm-hmm. How do we view ourselves as humans? Because mm-hmm. if you grew up a Jesus freak, you can't be human. Mm-hmm. You have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. You have to be like Jesus at all times, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So if people are listening and they, if people are like even re-listening to the album Jesus Freak and getting triggered, I'm just like, <laughs> go listen to Human Overboard. Um, <gasps> use it as a palate cleanser. And um, I just also wondered if you want to tell people where else they can find you and what, what you're up to. I know oh, you're up to sure, some very exciting yes. things. So I am very grateful to have started this interior design career about three or four years ago. And so, yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Jesse Lane Interiors uh, and TikTok. I just started dipping my toe in there. So it's, oh. that's, I mean, I'm a mom. I'm an old mom on TikTok. That's what I am. <laughs> Trying so hard not to embarrass my kids. That is like 
<laughs> what I do. And then my favorite place, Twitter, at Los Angeles is my name there, my tag, my whatever that's called. <laughs> so, yeah, this has been so fun. Thank you so much. We just are so grateful for you sharing your story because these are just stories that don't get told no. very much no. and um, so we really appreciate your vulnerability um, and just so glad to connect with you thank, thank you, you so, so much, much. I hope we see each other again soon one way or another This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Become a Patreon supporter for as little as $1.50 a month and join our community with extra episodes and a Facebook group to talk about Jesus Freak, religious trauma, and growing up evangelical. You can find us online at propheticimaginationstation.com as well as Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, thanks for listening.